I'm thankful that you're here with us. And I want to tell you at the outset of the sermon that I'm getting ready to bring, it's going to be quite different than a lot of sermons that I preach. But as I've been studying through the letter to the Ephesians, which is just an amazing letter that really a lot of biblical scholars will tell you, bring out what it really looks like to follow Jesus and to serve others, to live the Christian life. As the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth, he does so in a way that really brings it down to a practical level. But in this letter, what Paul's doing as well is that he's writing to people that are called Gentiles. There are some Jews in the church there in Ephesus, but there's also some Gentiles. Those people are who are non-Jews. And what he's doing is he's explaining the depth of their faith in Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is we're continuing this sermon series that's entitled Identity in Christ. I want to talk to us this morning about our following Jesus with kind of the notion of or the thought of identity, where do you live? Identity, where do you live? I want you to think just for a moment. I want you to answer the question. Where do you live? Where is it that you live? Now, interestingly enough, some of you instantly maybe said Charlottesville. How many of you said Charlottesville? You live in Charlottesville. How many of you thought about your house and your home address? You thought that. It's always interesting to ask that question. Now, I know for a lot of the students on grounds at UVA, if you ask, where do you live, they, they kind of go, ah, uh, and they're frozen. Because, you know, should I say UVA? Should I say where I've come from? And, you know, it just seems like at least 80% of all the students I meet on grounds, if I'm talking to them, I'll say, where are you from? And it's always Northern Virginia. How many students here, that's home? Northern, look at that. This is exactly what I'm talking about, uh, Northern Virginia. But the understanding, though, is where you live affects you. And how you see where you live affects you. Full disclosure, I live, I'm I'm sorry, I serve in a profession where because of God's calling, a lot of my colleagues live in places that if you were to ask them, they don't love. But they're called by God to live there. And in the midst of it, they have God's peace. But if you were to say, do you love where you live? A lot of the colleagues that I know of and that have served with over the years would tell you, no, they don't love where they live. They're they're called, they're glad to be there, but I feel so blessed because I get to love where I live. I love Charlottesville. I love the fact that I was able to raise my family here, and over the last 20 plus years, I've gotten to know things about this city. And the more I've gotten to know about this city, the more I've understood this city and the people that live here and what it looks like to live in Charlottesville. Well, the reality of it is, is if our identity is in Christ, we're going to discover this morning that the Apostle Paul talks about where do you live. Now, I'm sure you can already understand he's not necessarily speaking about the whole idea of physically. He's talking spiritually. And again, at the outset of this message, I want you to know that the approach that I'm taking is right from Ephesians chapter 2. But it's an approach that's probably different than most, and here's why. 
We have a lot of people here at City that are newer to faith. We have a lot of people here at City who are looking over the wall at faith and saying, is this something that I'm going to commit my life to completely? Then we have others that have walked with Jesus for many years, and as we've been processing through the book of Ephesians, what I know is a lot of people have been reading the book, but there's something Paul talks about that is mission critical for us to understand as we follow Jesus and serve others. It's critical. But in order to do it, we're going to have to understand some background things, and we'll get there in just a moment. So we're going to begin reading now in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. It'll be up on the big screen. You go ahead and read along silently. I'll read out loud. Here's what Paul says. Chapter 2, letter to Ephesians. He says the following. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. I don't know how you are, but when the Apostle Paul begins to lay out the Christian life in Ephesians chapter 2, he goes straight into the depths of things. And I want you to notice what he says. To me, it's profound and important. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. As for you, you were dead. You were dead. When you were living outside of Christ, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's a sobering thought. Because I don't know of anyone who, when they think about their life, go, before I met Jesus, I was dead. They think about it differently. Paul doesn't. Paul begins to play against the idea of being alive in Jesus and living in Jesus. Where do you live? Living in Jesus and what it is spiritually prior to that. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which you, what does he say next? Used to live. I would promise you, when they're reading the letter to Ephesians, some of them are thinking, oh my goodness, I never viewed it that way. I never viewed the fact that I was dead before I began to live in Christ. But Paul says that they were, and it says, when you followed the ways of the world. Then Paul goes on to say this. We already read it. He says, all of us lived among them at one time. Then the next thing he brings up is gratifying the cravings of our What's the next word? Flesh. And following its desires and thoughts. So Paul's talking about this. He's saying now that you live in Jesus, your thoughts, your desires, your cravings are now shaped in Christ. But before you met him, you were following those things. Those things ran your life. The idea of before Christ we lived gratifying the cravings of our flesh. We're going to get to flesh in a moment and following its desires and thoughts. I remember when I was a preteen boy and I was considering faith in Jesus. Remember this clearly. 
went to a youth group, and the youth pastor got up and he explained something that made sense to me. And here's what he said. He said, all of us outside of Jesus end up moving towards things that at the beginning we think are okay or good and we have control of them. But over time, the control shifts. Instead of me having control of it, it begins to have control of me. And what ends up happening is, when we live outside of Christ, and we pursue the passions and the desires of our flesh, as we do that, what begins to happen is, those things that maybe we dabble in, Maybe those things that create shame in us and even guilt in us, as we dabble in those things, what ends up happening is at the beginning we control them, but as they kind of grow and get traction in our lives, they begin to control us. But he gave us, this youth pastor, gave a visual image, and it was this. He said, I want you to picture this, that there's a picket fence in your backyard. And in your backyard, you know, even outside of faith in Christ, you know that certain things aren't right. But what you end up doing is there's a hole in the picket fence, so you stick your hand through into your neighbor's yard, and as you do that, your neighbor's yard is the concept of things that are outside of God's best for you. And he talked about how you reach in, become involved with things, and at first... You look at that and it's enjoyable or it's something that you're kind of in control in. And he said, but before you know it, you find that your arm is dragged in through that fence and you're trying to get free and you can't. I want you to clearly understand something. It's this. It's the idea that Paul brings to us that the hope we have in this world of living a transformed life where we cease to have to be controlled by our own desires and things that are around us is found in Christ. That in Jesus, I can live categorically a different life. Now what Paul brings up is the Greek word, sarks. In the, Greek, in the understanding of what he brings to us, he says that you used to live after the cravings of the flesh, the thoughts of the flesh, that you're living to satisfy your flesh. And so you'll notice if you were to look in your Bible after the word flesh, there's the footnote A, and at the bottom of the page, here's what it says. It's the Greek word flesh is sarks, which refers to the sin, sinful state of human beings often presented as a power in opposition to the Holy Spirit. So the idea then is this, is that outside of Jesus, there's this sense even within me that pulls me away from what God has and what's best for me from God. Now, Paul not only brings this up, but he says this. We read it. Paul says that while we were dead... We were dead spiritually outside of Christ. He writes, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. I love that phrase. He's wealthy in mercy. God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. So I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I was dead when I lived outside of Christ, but now in Christ, he says, God made us alive with Christ, 
even when we were what? Dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, please know this. How much can a dead person help themselves? Think about it. When you're dead, you're dead. You can't help yourself. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying is this, is that before you meet Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses and sin, and there's nothing you can do to help yourself. Nothing. You're dead. But God, who is great in mercy, comes to us, and it's by grace that you've been saved. In other words, God reaches out to us in Christ and he rescues us because dead people can't do anything to save themselves. Now again, I want you to get to the depths of your soul what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that outside of Jesus, you're dead. But in Christ, there's this life that's found in him. And it's all through God's grace and God's mercy. Now what we're going to do is we're going to take another thought before we read more scripture. It's this. Some of us sitting here, though, are going, you know what, Pete? I kind of appreciate Paul's perspective, but I'm not dead. I'm alive. Have any of you seen the show The Walking Dead? I've seen two episodes of it, and that was more than enough for me. But I want you to picture something. Paul, who is a Jewish Pharisee, knows the Older Testament. And at the beginning of the Bible, there's something that happens to the first human beings that step into a relationship with God, Adam and Eve. And while they're in the garden, they're living in absolute paradise. It's 75 degrees every single day. Spaghetti and meatballs grows on trees. <laughs> Italian food everywhere. And the finest Belgian chocolate you have ever seen grows on trees. But you see, in the middle of the garden, there's one tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God goes to this first people he's in relationship with and says, stay away from it, don't touch it, don't eat it. And the adversary of, this, of, the, of their soul shows up kind of develops a little bit of an argument, but in the middle of the argument says this to them. God says you'll die, but if you eat of that tree, you really won't die. And they eat of the tree, and they don't die physically, but they die spiritually. And after they eat of that tree, dysfunction ripples through all creation. Not just in human beings' bodies, not just in human relationships, but all creation. Dysfunction ripples through all of it. And the alien invader of sin now steps in. And yes, Adam and Eve are alive, but spiritually they are dead. They have died. And so as we think about it, I want you to know that the Apostle Paul knows this. And he's drawing back to the first stepping away from God by that first couple. And he brings it now into the Newer Testament, says you can be physically alive, but spiritually dead. 
Now, as we look at these scriptures, now we move towards Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. And again, I know that this message is different, but I want you to process through with Paul so that you can understand some of the depths of the Christian faith. Reading on, he says this. Now, remember, Paul's writing to Gentiles. Those are non-Jews as well as to Jews. And he's explaining to them what Christ has done to make them alive in him. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 says this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, non-Jews, by faith are called uncircumcised. But those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, once you who were far away, in other words, you lived a long way away from God's chosen people. For those of you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, I want you to notice what Paul says. He says this, that before you step into Jesus, the majority of us were not Jewish. And I'm going to get to what that means in just a moment because it's so important to understand what's coming next. Paul says this, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. So God had put promises in the world, but if you're not Jewish, you're out. And then he goes on to say, but through Christ, even though you were living away from that, now through Christ and through his blood... You are brought near. Now this becomes fundamental to understanding the Christian faith, the way the Apostle Paul sees it, and the way he writes to the city and the church in Ephesus. It begins here with Abraham and God's promises. How many of you have heard the little children's song that goes, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had father, and I am one of them, and so are you. How many of you have ever Okay. You see, Paul was a Jewish leader. He was a leader of the Jewish faith. And in the Jewish faith, he looked back to this guy, Abraham, as the one that steps into the initial relationship with God. And in that initial relationship with God, there was a guy, his name was Abram at the time, but God changes his name to Abraham. Abram means high father. Abraham means the father of many. So there's this guy, his name was Abram at first. God approaches him and says, Abram, listen, I want a people that's going to be for me. I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people, and I'm going to journey with them. And Abram, what I'm going to ask you to do is, I realize that you're with all these other people, but what I'm going to ask you to do is, by faith, I want you to leave the people that you know and love, Get your immediate family together and just begin to follow me by faith. And Abram says, where are we going? And God says, follow me. Abram goes, well, where are it? Nope, just follow me. And Abram miraculously goes, I'm in. So he gathers his wife, his children, goes to his father-in-law and says, I'm leaving. Father-in-law says, where are you going? He said, I don't know. No idea. Why are you leaving? There's this God. Oh, no kidding. 
what's the God's name? Not real sure. But he said to follow him, so I'm going to follow him. Well, where's this God going to lead you? Don't have a clue. And you're taking my, kid, my, my daughter, my grandkid, yep, we're leaving. And by faith, Abram begins to follow God. Now, as he does that, some things happen. You can read about this in the book of Genesis. But as he's following God, God comes back to him again after some missteps. And Abram, who's now Abraham, and God enter into what's called a covenant relationship. And a covenant always is sealed with blood. There must be blood in order for a covenant to be established. And the covenant... And the establishment of it in the Jewish faith, which is commanded by God, is circumcision of the male flesh. God calls for that. So that begins to happen. And so Abraham himself and all of his descendants move in that direction. And then it becomes part of the law of Moses. Where God commands that every male child on the eighth day, Jesus included, was circumcised as a sign of a covenant relationship with the God of Abraham. And so what you then have is, you have and you just read it and I read it and we think about it, but it becomes this, where those who are Jews, Jewish now begin to call themselves the people of circumcision and those who are not are out. And those are the people who are not of the circumcision. And they literally call themselves that. And so you read in Paul's letter to Ephesus, he was talking about it clearly, where he said that those who are uncircumcised are now welcomed in through Christ. And Paul says to them, consequently, because of what Jesus has done, you are no longer foreigners, uh, foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So in other words, there are those who are not Jewish that because of Jesus are now welcomed in. They're welcomed into who Christ is. Now, this also becomes very important. And here's why. It wasn't just circumcision that was being focused on. There were a lot of other issues happening as well. But what you find in the Newer Testament is that once Jesus is dead, buried, and resurrected, the apostle Peter and others, by the way, the name Peter is the second best name in the entire New Testament, but Peter, along with others, begin to take the faith outside of the Jewish faith. You can read about this in the book of Acts. And as they begin to travel outside of Judaism and move towards Gentiles, and Gentiles begin to find faith in Jesus Christ, what begins to happen is there's a huge argument. You can read about it in the book of Acts, and it's this. Some of those Jews who are carrying the message of Jesus say this. That if you say yes to Christ, you are now grafted in and you are now part of God's promise that was given to Abraham that he would have a covenant people to himself. He would be their God. They would be his people. Yes, you're grafted in. You don't have to be Jewish, but now you're grafted in. And through Christ, you attain that. Now you're part and you're a citizen of that group of people. But many of them begin to say, but circumcision must remain. It's got to continue to happen. Not only this, but the Apostle Peter, 
In the book of Galatians tells us this. The apostle Peter goes to a group of Gentiles. He preaches the gospel to them. They accept Christ by faith, and he's leading them. But all of a sudden, a group from the church in Jerusalem who's being pastored by James, the brother of Jesus, that group comes, and they visit where Peter is pastoring this group of people. And when Peter sees this little group come in from Jerusalem, who are called the group of circumcision, they come in, and they sit down, Peter begins to back away from the Gentiles. Because you see, it's not just about circumcision, it's also in the Jewish understanding that you would never eat with a non-Jew. You would never step into relationship with a non-Jew. And the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Church of Galatians that he rebukes Peter publicly. And he says, Peter, how dare you? How dare you bring people into Christ And then when the circumcision group shows up from Jerusalem and you're with all these people who are Gentiles who have never followed the law of God in the Older Testament in order to be Jewish, how dare you when that group of this oversight group from Jerusalem shows up, you back off and you cease to eat with these people who've said yes to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul publicly rebukes Peter. You can read about it in the book of Acts where this heated discussion begins to happen where some are demanding that circumcision must remain because it's the hallmark of a relationship with God that was given in covenant relationship to Abraham. Well, what Paul says again is this, is that in Jesus, in Christ, we are saved by God's grace. It's by grace that you're saved, not the cutting of human flesh, not at all. Well, what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 is absolutely profound, and he says this, that it's on the cross when Jesus' blood was shed that the covenant is covered through his blood for all people, that there's a new covenant in Christ. That old covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. And now it's through the cutting of his flesh and the shedding of his blood that everyone can step in by faith in him. And then when you do, that that original promise that was given to Abraham, and the promise was this, Abraham, you're going to be my guy. And from you will come uncountable numbers of people more than the stars in the heaven and the sands of the seas. Abraham, from you will come a group of people. I will be their God. They will be my people. And to Abraham, he says, it's through circumcision that you will be marked as part of this covenant. And Paul says, there's a new covenant. And the new covenant is now found in Jesus. And it's his blood that was shed For your sin and in the shedding of his blood, God's grace is extended now to all people, to anyone who would turn towards Christ. What's amazing is you can read in the book of Acts where this conflict happens and it's over the circumcision of the flesh. 
And the Apostle Paul steps in, and then Peter begins to see it the Apostle Paul's way, and he steps into the council in Jerusalem as they're determining what will be required of people in order to follow Jesus. And they exit that meeting that you can read in the book of Acts, and it says this, that it's only through Christ. And what we're calling people to to do is to surrender their hearts and lives to him. Because the argument begins this way. If circumcision is required, then all the other laws apply as well. And so Paul says, it's by faith through grace. It's nothing of yourselves. It is the gift of God that's given to us through Christ. It's nothing you can do. And if you would remember The Apostle Paul uploads this argument that we just read, and he says this, that circumcision ultimately is something that is done with human hands. And Paul says, but here's Jesus. This is what God has done through Christ. And it was through his flesh, his flesh, that we are now freed up from sin. And we can now live a new life. And all of the promises that God gave to Abraham are now yes and amen in Jesus. They are yes and amen in him. So when we process this, we come to the point to where, well, how do I put feet to my faith with this? What do I do? Well, it's simple, but it's profound. It's something that you can do right now if you've never done it before, but it will change everything. It will change where you live spiritually, bringing you from death to life. It will change how you utilize yourself in this world. There will be a calling on your life that will come directly from God. It's this, where you consider Christ and you consider what he has done for us. And as the Apostle Paul uploads that argument, he says so clearly that in Jesus you are no longer foreigners to the promises of God, but in Christ you are welcomed in. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like any person here pausing in this very moment and saying, Jesus, I ask you that you would take me Someone who is outside of that chosen people and that in you, I would find that God is now choosing me. So Jesus, take me as I am. Forgive me of my sins, but don't please leave me where I'm at, but transform me and make me into a person of your promise so that this life that I live is in you. It's in you. Here's why. There are some of us here, you've been gratifying the desires of your flesh. And now you're tired. And you know, you know to the core of your soul that you're trapped and you're caught. That's what it means to be dead. God in his grace and in his mercy sends Jesus.
And Jesus rescues us. And he forgives us. And he cleanses us. And he gives us new life in him. We're going to move towards communion. And as we move towards communion, I'm going to ask that you would take out the communion emblems that you were handed as you came in. If you do not have those, and you have not been served, and you do not have the communion elements, and you would like to be served, we have people in this moment who are prepared to serve you. And so if you will raise your hand if you have not been served, but you would like to be served, and here at City, we invite everyone to take communion with us doesn't take being a member, it just takes you putting your faith, hope, and trust in Christ. Now what I'm also aware of, these cups are a little bit difficult to operate. So if you need a little help, turn to someone next to you and ask them to help you. Kind of clear cellophane on top, peels back first, and the bread is there, and then the aluminum foil gets peeled back, and there you'll find the juice, the fruit of the vine. As we prepare our hearts for communion, I want us to process what Christ has done for us. And there's no better way to do this than to do it in Christ. To understand what he's done for us through the shedding of his blood. The pinnacle of God's relationship with his people in the Older Testament moves beyond the cutting of the male flesh where it moves towards the shedding of the blood of a lamb. The shedding of that blood causes God's judgment to pass over his people. And read about that in the book of Exodus. But you see, the center of that was the blood of the lamb that was shed for the covering of the sinfulness of God's people so God's judgment would pass over. For thousands of years, the people of Israel have celebrated Passover. And then we move into the Newer Testament. And just before Jesus allowed his flesh to be cut and his blood to be shed for the covering of all of our sin, just before that happens, Jesus gathers with his disciples. And they're there in a private room. And the Bible says this in the book of Corinthians, that Jesus took the bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. And every single one of his Jewish disciples froze. Because now Jesus was putting himself in the center of Passover. That he was declaring that he is the Lamb of God. That his blood causes God's judgment to pass over. And so as we hold up the bread together, let's take a moment to give thanks. God, thank you for the plan that you've brought into this world. That you've had a passion to have a people for yourself. That you would be their God and they would be your people. Jesus, as we hold this bread in our hands, we acknowledge the brokenness of your body, which was broken for us. Can we now stand together and then we're going to partake. Jesus, thank you for your broken body. Let's eat together.
Bible says, in the same manner after supper, Jesus took the cup. And having blessed it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink it. And in doing so, let's remember together the shed blood of Christ and how through his blood we are all welcomed in to be children of the promise that we would live in Christ. Let's drink together. We're going to worship together as a church family now. We're going to sing about coming to the altar. If you're here this morning and you sense that God's calling you to bring yourself to Him, and if you sense maybe coming forward to be prayed for or to be prayed with is something God's drawing in your heart and your life, our life group leaders and our prayer team members are now moving to position themselves to pray with you. But we're going to worship as a congregation and then we'll conclude with the pastoral blessing. Let's worship together.